0: there's more to life than survival. And for those of us who are lucky enough to be at the point in our lives where we have the extra time and capacity to devote to Mm -hmm. our self-worth journey, it's a beautiful thing to be able to prioritize yourself and really know yourself and explore yourself and get so comfortable in your authentic, your authentic self.
1: Welcome to the Unconditionally Worthy Podcast. In this podcast, I will guide you on your journey to connect with the true source of your self-worth. Each week, we'll discuss barriers to unconditional self-worth, the connection between self-worth and relationships, self-worth practices you can apply to your life, and how to use self-worth as a foundation for living courageously. I'm your host, Dr. Adia Gooden a licensed clinical psychologist, dance enthusiast, and a dark chocolate lover who believes deeply that you are worthy unconditionally. Hello and welcome to the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. We are on episode 28 and today I talk with Corey Williams, who is a Black, biracial, bisexual, cisgender woman who leads the SARE Collective, which is an organization that provides consultation and training related to diversity, equity, and inclusion and supports white parents who are raising Black and biracial children. We had an amazing depthful conversation that you are going to want to tune into. Corey shared her own self-worth journey and how her experiences growing up as a Black woman and being the survivor of sexual assault influenced her view of her self-worth. We talked about how the context that we are raised in and socialized in really impact and influence how we see ourselves as worthy or not worthy. We talk about the power of self-compassion and self-kindness for building our self-worth and enabling us to navigate challenging relationships. And that's something we dig deep into since this episode is airing just before Thanksgiving when so many of us are spending more time with our family. Corey really shares her insights on how people can navigate challenging family dynamics during the holidays while also taking care of themselves. We talk about how you can set boundaries that actually support and maintain connection. This conversation is deep and it is rich and you may even get a few laughs or amens while you are listening. So stay tuned and dig into all of the richness that we discuss and all of the wisdom that we share. Be sure to like this podcast, to leave a review, and really let us know what you think. Can't wait to see you in the episode. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to have my friend Corey Williams here with me to talk about self-worth. Corey Williams is an engaging speaker, which I know this to be true, and she's an awesome storyteller as well. She's contributed to a variety of podcasts and radio programs, and I'm so excited to have her here on the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. She talks about equity, anti-racism, gender violence, and sexual assault and healing. And she's been doing equity work her entire life. But as a vocation, she's been doing it since 2016, which is about five years in the game. It's a long time, a lot of wisdom from those five years and a lifetime, I'm sure. And Corey brings a warmth and empathy for people wherever she goes. And she's passionate about ensuring that each diverse person is valued. Corey graduated from Harvard University. She identifies as Black, bisexual, and a woman, and her pronouns are she, her, and hers. She currently lives in Chapel Hill, North Carolina with her four children, her partner, and two very small and very loud dogs. So, Corey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad to have you on the show. Thank you, and I'm really hoping we don't hear from my very loud dogs during this. (laughs) Totally not, but there's editing and we know it's human. And so it's okay if they decide to uh, make an appearance or at least an audio appearance. So, you know, Corey, since this podcast is all about unconditional self-worth, I was hoping that we could start by having you share a bit about your own self-worth journey and how you think about your self-worth and the things that have impacted it and kind of where you are with that today. Sure, sure. So, you know, I think that for
0: many Black women, especially, unconditional self-worth is a journey because so many of us have these ideas that um, we have to perform in order to be worthy, in order to deserve. And so much of what I learned from my um, mother, my grandmother, my aunt is that we should be doing for others, that we needed to put the other people in our lives first. And that created a situation where I think I was always seeking approval. I was seeking approval from my parents early on, and then later from peers. And then finally, I would say in my first marriage, from my ex husband, where we both contributed to an incredibly unhealthy dynamic where I was constantly trying to please him and he was withholding that approval. And it was a really vicious cycle, which ultimately was a big part of the end of our marriage. And I think that that process, as well as my experience with the sexual assault, was a real reset time in my life where all of the constraints, all of the things that you wake up and assume are true every day had fallen away. Like the friends that I had were different. The place my children were going to school, my physical surroundings, my financial situation, my job, everything was up in the air. And what that gave me is a kind of freedom. It's a kind of real freedom to, for the first time, define what was important to me and to rebuild my life with intention and to put myself For the first time, at the center of my own life, Mm. which sounds sort of bananas when you say it that way, right? Because obviously, we should all be at the center of our own lives. But I had made so many other people the center of my solar system, and um, it was definitely dimming my sun. Mm. (laughs) I didn't have the energy for me. I didn't have. I didn't have compassion for myself, and I think that that began to change
1: in those years following my divorce. Mm, wow. I mean, that's so powerful. And you talked about so many points, right, on your self-worth journey. So starting with how you grew up, how you were socialized, what you learned from your black mother and grandmother. And I agree as Black women, we are socialized to orient to other people. How can we give? How can we serve? How can we be strong for other people? And even the idea of taking care of ourselves or putting ourselves first is thought of as selfish, right? And not being in line of with what's expected. And so starting from there and then sort of having this pattern of trying to please other people in order to feel worthy, in order to feel like you were okay. And I really love that you shared about your first marriage because I think So many people believe, well, if I just find that one true perfect partner, then I will feel worthy. And all of this other stuff will sort of fall away. I certainly have tried that avenue myself. (laughs) And then what you find and what you see is that actually, no, you just kind of carry it into the relationship and it creates these toxic dynamics that are unhealthy and sort of keep you striving, even in a relationship that's supposed to be unconditionally worthy. You know, I also love that you shared that sort of hitting this space where so many of the things that you had relied on, maybe for a sense of worthiness, that where they fell away and that sort of gave you the room to define yourself, define your self-worth, figure out who you were and prioritize yourself is so powerful because I think we all sort of come to this space of, hey something's not right with the self-worth thing or this way I've been trying to get to self-worth in different ways. And so it's really powerful that you've used even a really traumatic experience for your own healing and growth and recentering yourself in your life.
0: Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I want to encourage anyone who's out there listening that you don't have to start from um, a position of, you know, I get it. I want to make Like I I fully buy into this whole self-worth thing. You can really be where you are and grow in stages. Mm -hmm. And it's only really in retrospect, I think for me, that I'm able to fully put the picture together of how all of that healing has happened. And, you know, I look to you, Adia, and I'm just like so impressed because I'm a little bit older and it has taken me so much longer On my journey to really free myself from so many of these perfectionism ideas and these ideas that I always had to show up and be 200%. I think, you know, in doing my anti-racism work and my DEI work, one of the things that's really important to me is that we both acknowledge that the reasons we have all of these expectations of ourselves are really logical. Like they come Mm -hmm. from the systems that have required them of us in order to succeed and make sure our families thrive. So on the one hand, I don't, you know, I don't want us to look at ourselves and say, oh, why are we like this as black women, right? We should look at ourselves with compassion and say, we were adapting creatively to a system that was pushing on our family structures from all sides. Mm -hmm. and was undermining our humanity. And we dealt, right? We figured it out and we survived. And like both hand thinking, which you know, I love both hand thinking. And there's more to life than survival. And for those of us who are lucky enough to be at the point in our lives where we have the extra time and capacity to devote to Mm -hmm. our self-worth journey, it's a beautiful thing to be able to prioritize yourself and really know yourself and explore yourself and get so comfortable in your authentic, your authentic self.
1: Yeah. You are totally speaking my language. I think, you know, contextualizing where these things, patterns, behaviors came from in the context of history, in the context of navigating racism and sexism and discrimination and oppression, in the context of needing to do everything you could to make sure that you and your family survived, I think is so important. And I think it's important because it does Help people with self-compassion, right? Because one of the risks is we say we start beating ourselves up for the fact that we haven't been centering around what's wrong with me that I haven't right. taking, I haven't been taking care of myself. And that becomes us another thing that makes us feel less worthy. But if we can say, given my history, given my family's history, given my ancestors, given everything they had to deal with, it makes so much sense that this might be how I operate. And I have so much compassion and gratitude for myself. For doing what I needed to do to survive for my parents, for my ancestors, for doing what they needed to do to survive. And if I maybe have more privilege, more resources, more time, more energy how do I use that to take care of myself in a different way moving forward? And that really, I feel like is such an empowering pr- place because we're not staying in a, all of these things happen to me or to my family and there's nothing I can do about it. We are moving in, we're acknowledging and then also moving into an empowered space where it's like, okay, what can you do? And I also love what you said about starting where you are, right? Like how, what's, a couple of ways you can start treating yourself more kindly and with more compassion. And how does that build and branch out into other things? And, you know, this sort of makes me think a lot about your work with sexual assault survivors, right? That's a a acute present trauma that happens sort of in somebody's lifetime. And I wonder how you think about sort of this balance of acknowledging the trauma and all of the pain and harm it causes and supporting and empowering sort survivors in their healing process. You
0: know, my own journey and the gift of being able to work with other survivors has radically changed my life in so many ways. But I think the kernel that for me began to bring it all together is the very premise of trauma-informed care. This idea that, that we don't ask people what is wrong with them because there is nothing wrong with people right? Mm. That that things have happened to them. Things have happened in their lives. There is nothing wrong mm-hmm. with someone. They are not broken. They have had a experience that was really devastating. And so to frame it that way for myself and to know that something happened in my life and I had choices about how to process it. And really, sometimes the choice is, to feel the pain, to fully be present in it. Sometimes the choices that I want to sit with and experience it, and frankly, maybe even indulge myself in it. And that is, a, that is a perfectly reasonable thing to do in a situation like that. But naming it, being able to say, this is what I'm doing right now. Is a way of making sense of the progress of, of mm-hmm. the whole the journey and, and also like being able to narrate where you are in your own story. I think you mm-hmm. know my two, two tools that I've really tried to give my daughter in terms of her self-worth are to first um, be her own best friend. Mm-hmm. And when she, when she starts to criticize herself or reflect on something that she's done or beat herself up, think about the way she would respond to a friend and treat herself that way. So really craft that inner dialogue to have some kindness. Um, and then, you know, to think about herself as the hero of her story mm-hmm. and that every day is a chapter in that story and she has control over, she may not have control over the whole plot. But as the hero of our own story, she can decide what direction it goes in. She can make narrative choices. And those have been really important for her. Of course, she's also an avid reader. So it's a really important analogy for her. And um, her little celebration of the week is she just got herself a
1: little job at the Barnes and Noble. Wow, <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. 49% yeah.
0: discount. <laughs>
1: Perfect. Yeah, I, you know, I love what you're saying, right? This, this piece, I talk a lot about self-compassion and being our own best friends, being kind to ourselves instead of criticizing ourselves, instead of beating ourselves up for mistakes is so important. And I, you know, think about that also when I work with clients who have experienced a trauma, there's the piece about what somebody else has done or what has happened that's harmful. But a big piece of the healing work is not believing yourself for somebody, the harm someone else has caused for you. And so many survivors hold on to this blame and shame that it was their fault or they did something wrong or they did something to cause it. And that's often a huge source of the pain that people experience. And so I think working through that is really important and being kind and compassionate and forgiving ourselves and all of that and acknowledge that, that it was not our responsibility, right? We're not to blame for the trauma And the harm that's caused to us. And I think the other really powerful thing you're saying is, you know, bringing people out of a space of victimhood, right? And when we are in a place where we feel like victims in our own lives, it's usually because we feel like life is happening to us and we don't have any choice. It feels like I have no choice. There's nothing I can do to change my life. There's nothing I can do to change the situation. And certainly there are things outside of our control. And if somebody does something to harm us, That's not something we can control. And I love what you said that you're teaching your daughter. There are choices, right? And helping people to connect to what choices do you have in this moment? And even knowing, even if you're choosing something that like short-term feels really good, long-term may not be great. It's an open eyed choice and it's your choice to make and you don't need to beat yourself up over it, but you can say, okay, right now the choice I'm making is I'm not going to get out of bed today because it's just too much. And, and that's, I'm staying in bed and yeah, maybe a walk could be helpful, but right now I'm not up for that. I'm just going to stay in bed or the choice I'm making is this or that. And that brings back agency and yes, makes people the hero in their own lives and in their own stories. My grandma Georgie um, used to say, the only thing I got to do in this
0: life is stay black and die.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that.
0: Well, and she's right. Like those are the two truths. Like, uh, you know, there's a restaurant in Raleigh too, death and taxes. Like those are the only two things you can, you know, count on. So, I mean, really everything else we do is a choice. And once we sort of awaken to that as a, re- a realization, we start to feel much more. I guess a greater sense of the possibilities in front of us. We had an entire conversation with myself today in which I said, you are procrastinating right now. What you're doing is procrastinating. You're having some feelings about this workbook that you need to put together. Mm -hmm. We're just going to, we're just procrastinating. Mm -hmm. And to be able to acknowledge it to yourself without judgment, sometimes we procrastinate. That's it. There's nothing attached to
1: that, right? Exactly. Right. It doesn't make you less worthy. It doesn't make you lazy, which is often where people go. I'm just lazy. And then we can say, well, why were you procrastinating? Right. Okay. well, there's some discomfort. There's maybe not knowing how to move forward. There's dreading that it's going to be boring or hard or tedious. And you can say, "Okay, well, how about if I just do one page of the workbook? Right. And and it creates this possibility for it to be workable, for it to be movable and get you out of a place of feeling
0: stuck. And one of the things I'm really interested in in my DEI work is this notion that we have in our our white normative American culture, our middle class values, that industry, that income producing work, that doing, Mm. that efforting, you know, is of moral value. Mm. Like, that's a big jump we've all made there together, Mm. right? That there are many other cultures that see altruistic work not for money as of moral value. Mm -hmm. There are cultures that look at work that is for the individuals prospering as selfish and of low moral value. Mm -hmm. We've all made that leap between I should be doing and producing economic benefit. It's fundamental to our capitalistic society, but also Mm -hmm. fundamentally undermines our work because Mm. we're worthy because we are not because we did right yeah because we are so i um i think a lot about those connections to capitalism and our white normative middle class american culture
1: Yeah. Oh, I love how you're contextualizing it, right? The messages that we get this Protestant work ethic, and that's what makes you good. That's what makes you worthy. And this idea that your production, what you produce, is dependent on your worth. And, you know, I often think about it and say to clients, like, you know, you don't want to become a human doing, you're a human being, right? Like, where's your space to be? And what's the value on relationships, on the process of things, on the seasons, on things that come and go? And, you know, as you talk about this, right, the culture that we are socialized in and how that influences how we see our worthiness, I'd love to t- for you to talk a little bit about your identity and experience as a biracial Black woman and as someone who sort of has navigated different cultures, both in terms of the schools you've gone to and the society we live in, but also in terms of your home cultures that you navigated.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I grew up in Alabama mm. in a little town to a public school and then shipped off to Harvard in Boston, which is completely, you know, fish out of water experience there. Mm. But I also... Always had that kind of sort of binary in my life, like these really divergent experiences. I had one grandfather who um, went to school until about fifth grade and never read, but memorized Mm. lots of the Bible and taught Bible school like from memory, you know. Mm. Um, And I had another grandfather who was the editor of a newspaper. And, you know, Mm -hmm. got national awards. Uh, So, like, I've always had these sort of very bifurcated experiences. But experiences where I was loved. I was loved in both places. I was Mm -hmm. fully accepted 100% in all of those spaces. I would say it was when I was out in the world that I Mm -hmm. felt my difference most acutely. And that was certainly a challenge for me growing up. And it definitely undermined my Mm self-worth. I really struggled to fit anywhere in a town that was still racially segregated um where black folks lived on one side of the town and white folks went lived on the other side of the town and everybody went to different churches and different everything mm. and so not having a place that I fit was really socially difficult as like an adolescent and a child i think it's a real important part of why i do the work that i do now
1: Um, Mm -hmm.
0: One of the things that I'm involved with right now is the Loving Collective, which is Mm -hmm. a membership space for white parents of black and black biracial children. And it's just to help them through this Mm -hmm. unusual or less unusual than it was when I was growing up. But this um, still somewhat unusual experience in navigating racial difference inside their family relationship. There was a lot of not, not saying things when I was growing mm-hmm. up, a lot of, well, we'll just hug it out. you know. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, mm-hmm. not being able to name what was happening, not being able to connect the dots in terms of why mm-hmm. black people were in certain spaces and white people are in others, why certain people had power and so certain people didn't. Like the whys behind all of mm-hmm. that as a child didn't make a lot of sense to me. And the adults in my life weren't able to help me craft a narrative around it. Um, That's a big part of what I do now. And I think the other big shift for me really has come in the last year. And that is the moment where I finally connected the dots between all of the isms Mm -hmm. and all of the ways in which we create a hierarchy of human worth. We have this concept that there is a perfect body, a kind of body that we should all have. And that body in our culture is white, male, cisgendered, right? It's all the things. Mm -hmm. And then below that, we have this hierarchy where we place people and I've participated in it by placing Mm -hmm. myself there too. And Mm -hmm. by, Acknowledging it. And part of my self love journey has been about getting off the hierarchy
1: mm. and saying,
0: I don't have to play or participate in this. I'm worthy. My body mm-hmm. is worthy just because I am. Yeah. Um, and that's really helped me connect the dots between my feelings for myself and the work that I do. Because mm. how could I look at myself and say, mm, Corey, you should lose a few pounds? Like, how could I look at myself and mm. say that? And then live fully into the attention of loving every body fat, thin, all of the bodies, right? Mm. So for me, that last piece of the puzzle of this level, let's just say it's just this level. It's like <laughs> a level up, right? <laughs> <laughs> But this level has been about bringing it all full circle and recognizing that part of valuing people who are unhoused and people of different mm. intellectual ability and people of different physical ability and people of different races and religions and all of the things, mm-hmm. it starts with me yeah. my body And until I do that. I can't fully live into the work. Mm. So mm. Um, that was really motivating for me.
1: Like yeah.
0: I had to get down with myself. So, <laughs> that, you know, so yeah. that I could go out and do the work that I want to do.
1: Yeah. That's incredibly powerful. It makes me think of Sonia and Renee Taylor's work with the body is not an apology, which I read and it was like, Oh, this is, this is hard. Right. Oh like, my <laughs> gosh. But three times, like one
0: sitting, I was like, let's do that again. You know, I mean, I think her work is really, um, really important on that. And I think also the connections around the black body, racism, colonialism, and, mm. um, body shaming and fat. Uh, Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, that
0: work is really really interesting i'm trying to remember i can drop you the name of a woman who has done so much scholarly work on it but that was another moment that blew my mind Mm -hmm. when i realized how much our worshiping of thinness and our hierarchy of bodies and industry really are tied to colonialism the spread of protestantism in the united states Mm -hmm. and the transatlantic slave trade and i mean i was like whoa (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, you know, it's like the levels of internalization can go really deep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it also makes me think about how one of the things I think about and probably would like to talk about more is, you know, the... People who are very in favor of police abolition, which I think is great, how it's like, Okay, so how do you turn that internal? Right. Like if you are do not think that the way policing happens in this country, that's harmful and traumatizing and overly punitive and all and throws people away. Like, what are you doing with yourself when you do those things? When you police yourself, when you criticize yourself, when you beat yourself up, when you throw yourself in metaphorical jail and say, I'm done with myself there. I'm irredeemable. Well... (laughs) Doing doing the same thing, right? With yourself that you are advocating that we not do with other humans. And it makes me think about this. The personal is political, right? And the political is personal. And we have to be so thoughtful and intentional about dismantling these systems, these systems of oppression in our own heads, Yes. And that that really is sort of the key and the starting point for, you know, doing the work in the world and for, you know, this advocacy and living the lives of freedom that I think all of us really want.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, when I think about like the body politic, I try to imagine it as my physical body. Like I, I think you're exactly right. We're the systems which live outside of us, live within us. And so to really be whole, we have to dismantle them within ourselves. And then, and it's like, it radiates outwards, right? Because when I'm really empathetic with myself, when I'm authentic about where I'm showing up for myself and where I'm not, and I'm, I'm really introspective, and having grace for myself mm-hmm. i've got that abundantly to share right then then i'm able to turn around and share that with those in my family in my community i find that when i'm miserly with myself i'm miserly with other people too mm-hmm. right and so often when i see others that are you know i just want to hug it out with them because so much of what i'm seeing is an external manifestation of what they are doing to themselves mm-hmm. right and it's just like you just you just want to hug them
1: yeah that's the Alabama girl in me we just hug everybody (laughs) yeah but it's I mean I think what you're speaking to is sort of the power of radical love right not a love that says oh we're just gonna ignore everything and like act like it didn't happen but a love that says I see you and I see the pain you're in to be acting in this way or engaging in this behavior or having these challenges and how do we work through that? And I'm, I love you enough to show up for you and with you in the midst of that messy work.
0: Yes. I I think when I reflect on when people find
1: me challenging
0: Mm. um, as a coach or as a DEI consultant, it's because I believe that at the core of kindness is truth. Mm. And if there is no truth, what you're doing is politeness, right? It is. It's icing. It's icing on a, on a, you know, styrofoam cake. It's lipstick on a pig. You know, it it is is not worth anything. But at the core of kindness is truth. And so I may say things very directly with love that are painful and difficult because mm-hmm. the work is messy. The yeah. work of really seeing and knowing ourselves is messy, owning the harm we've done in the world mm. for ourselves and others. I mean, really being accountable. Yeah. Um, it, it's messy work and it's yep. painful work and beautiful work, you know, that there's no way to get there other than through.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's so true. And it's why, I think the foundation of self-compassion is so powerful, right? Because it means we're going to be honest, incredibly honest, and we're going to be here with you. It's not like I'm calling you out and I'm out. It's like I'm calling you out or I'm calling you in or I'm talking about something and I'm staying here with you. And that's the other thing with the self-work, right? I think one of the things that I hear when I preach self-compassion is like, well, how am I going to hold myself accountable? Or, you know, how am I going to grow? Or how am I going to evolve? Or what if I do something wrong? And I'm like, these things are not contradictory. In fact, Mm -hmm. being compassionate to yourself and others lays the groundwork and the foundation to hold yourself accountable. And shaming yourself and being harshly self-critical usually causes you to shut down and withdraw and actually not take responsibility and think about how you want to move forward in a different way. You know, this episode is airing just before Thanksgiving, actually, and one of the things I wanted to talk about with you, since you are helping parents in this work, is navigating this both as sort of as a parent or as a child of... Parents who didn't get it right all all the time, which is basically all of us, (laughs) none of our parents got it right all the time. And I think a lot of times when the holidays come, people are, you know, a lot gets stirred up around our parents not meeting us where we needed them to meet us. And then also for parents. And so I just wonder what your thoughts are on that and and what guidance you might have to share related to that. Oh, yeah. Holidays. Fun. (laughs) Um, Okay, so my first
0: piece of advice is to decide what you want it to be, Mm -hmm. right? And to decide ideally together what you want it to be. So I've had my parents have been married and divorced. I've had step parents and not step parents and siblings and not siblings and all sorts of combinations. But if you can set aside space and decide what you're using that time and space for and have peace about that, you'll know what you're going into, right? Mm -hmm. What we typically do is we just show up. I mm-hmm. wonder what everybody's gonna say and how they're gonna behave and what we're gonna do. And it's like this constant, there's so much stress and anxiety with that. Mm-hmm. But if you've said to yourself, my goal is I'm gonna be with my 75-year-old father and be present in this moment.
1: Mm-hmm. That this,
0: this time at the Thanksgiving table is going to be about this moment and creating this memory. And when we are ready, we will set aside the time to do the other work, mm-hmm. right? Because I think expecting ourselves to Address all of that with no context, with no support, with no preparation. It's just stirring up stuff over gravy. (laughs) (laughs) That's all it is. So Mm. if if y'all don't want to be eating at separate card tables, (laughs) Mm. really just um, drawing some boundaries, especially if you're having um, differences, you know, political differences, differences about your belief systems or religion or whatever it is that you're having differences about. Set aside time. If you can't, if you say, I can't show up authentically and not talk about that, that's okay too, Mm -hmm. but name it and know what you're moving into so that you can all have a sense of what's to come. So I think that's like the first thing. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is I, you know, I really strive to be in each and every moment and, you know, I, when I grew up, it was called mindfulness. And now we call it embodied awareness, right? Because mm-hmm. we're whole body now. Um, and because our bodies have ways of knowing too, our minds aren't the only things that can know. Our bodies know when we need to, you know, when to release eggs and when to gestate and give birth. And, mm-hmm. you know, well, there's all sorts of knowledge resident in our bodies. And so being in your body in those moments, as opposed to letting your mind take you back to mm-hmm. the past or to living in the future of what for what conflict you're going to have in the future or what um, relationship will look like in the future really just being in that moment together and prioritizing that moment and doing all of the check-ins that come with that moment are, are my my biggest pieces of advice.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's so powerful because I think a lot of people go home and put pressure on themselves to like, now I'm going to talk to my parents about all the issues we've had or their beliefs that are problematic and I'm going to fix them and we're going to sort of duke it out. And, you know, the holidays can already be a tense time depending on family losses, but depending on other challenges. And so sort of being honest and open about what are we doing here? And it doesn't have to be like, you totally change the nature of the relationship or you change someone's views in a weekend because it's just not realistic and it puts so much pressure on. But to think about this as sort of an ongoing process, there's probably a series of conversations And that if you want to stay in relationship with your family, the relationship is the foundation, the fertile soil for those seeds to be planted in. Right. If things are hard and rough and gruff and you accusatory then it's very hard to plant seeds of change. But if there's a softness and a connection and finding common ground, it makes it more helpful. And obviously this changes, right? If if you are in a family where somebody who has caused you harm is still there and they haven't apologized, right? Like it becomes so much more complicated. Yes. And I think that's also where your second recommendation for embodied awareness is so powerful, right? I like to talk about honoring your body. So checking in, what do you need? Do you need to leave the house and take a Mm -hmm. walk, right? Do you need to get up every morning and meditate before things start rolling in a house? Do you need to make sure you only stay two days instead of the typical five, because that is just too much and your body is saying, nope, we can't do it. But to sort of have that awareness and again, take care of yourself in the space and know that you're not going to solve every problem or every issue or resolve everything in one conversation over a meal. If if, if anybody listening thinks they're going to go home and solve racism or homophobia
0: or able- ableism or anything else at Thanksgiving, y'all let me know how that works out. <laughs> I mean, really, we expect a lot of ourselves and we expect a radical change when we do that. And calling in work is long work. Mm-hmm. It's a long game. And it really requires a, a relationship that you're building. It requires more listening than you probably want to do, right? Mm-hmm. People are generally not irrational, right? Something happened in the lives of those around you that you've haven't gotten to the kernel of, it has led them where they are. And there's some experiences that you've had that led you where you are. And so it's when we can connect across that difference and share those experiences that we start to widen our worldview and really um, begin to do transformative work, not sub- not surface work, the real work mm-hmm. of um, connection and um, creation of community. You know, I the other piece of advice I would have for those folks who might be let's say, going home to a set of expectations but need to do things for themselves is to name them Mm. out loud in advance and use your I statements. You know, mm-hmm. so many of the time I think that our our own parent, as I think about myself, are excited about us coming home, right? Mm-hmm. It's a big deal for them. And I've got one who's about to fly the nest right now and go off to college. And I mm-hmm. I can only imagine how excited I'm gonna be when she comes home. Mm-hmm. And so there's all sorts of expectation with that. And if she, for example, chose to stay at a hotel, a lot of that would feel like it was about me, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's stopping and saying, Mom. I need to stay at a hotel because I've been having some back pain. Also, I don't want Uncle Joe to come over and say X, Y, Z. And Uncle Joe is going to come over and say X, Y, Z. -hmm. I need a safe place to go. Or the cousin that made me feel really uncomfortable last time because he commented on my body. Mm -hmm. I need a place to go when, if Mm -hmm. and when that happens, a safe spot. So like finding the people who might give you pushback if they don't know what's going on for you. Yeah. And sharing with them that you're honoring your needs, that you're honoring your body, that you're taking care of yourself. Those yeah. folks that love you will
1: love that too, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. they want
0: to take care of you too.
1: Yeah. And it makes me think about how setting healthy boundaries actually supports connection. The alternative is you like grit your teeth and you're like, oh, okay, maybe I'll survive. Can I survive? Can I survive? And then there's like a blow up, or you're like, I don't want to talk to you like why, you know, and there's this irritation that makes you feel like I can't connect to you because you're going to overtake me or you're going to do too much. or I'm going to be stuck here. But if you say, here are my boundaries, when I show up, I'm here, I'm present, I'm engaged, what you were saying earlier, Corey. And then when I need time to myself, when I need to regroup, I am moving away. And And that happens with more grace and ease versus we, I have to have a fight with you to be able to leave the house and stores are slamming and I'm running out because that's the way we've done it in the family is that people don't say, Hey, I can't engage right now, or I need some space right now. And I'm going to, you know, take a walk, but it escalates because that wasn't said. And then there's this fight and this storming out, you know, and so it's, that is shifting the dynamic of your family. I think people talk about sort of breaking generational cycles and patterns and that is it right? Is showing up, setting boundaries, taking care of yourself, that that is a powerful way to shift the dynamics in your family.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think showing up and asking those women for me that I love so much, my aunts and my mama who always go into those patterns of cooking all day and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're in their sixties and like mama's feet are hurting. Mm I know they are. I can see it on her face, you know, and and saying to them, how can you honor your body right now? What is it that you need? And my mom will promptly go out, sit on the porch and do two hours of yoga. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I think sometimes those of us kind of in that sandwich generation, the 30s and 40s, maybe we have babies, maybe we have parents. I think sometimes we feel like we're kind of um, in a swirl of activity and we're still being guided and controlled by the older generation, but trying to deal with all the needs of the younger one. But in fact, I think if, if we do what you're encouraging us to do, if we talk, if we're um, open about our self-worth journey, about honoring ourselves, about taking care of ourselves, we're honest with ourselves and others about our needs, it does shift the family dynamic. It changes changes your whole family's mm. relationship
1: mm-hmm. with each other.
0: And that's, you know, it's really beautiful thing. Yeah. I'm getting married next year. I know you just did your thing, girl. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I'm getting married in Mexico um, um, and some of my family is not happy about that. Mm. And I'm like, I understand. Mm-hmm. I am. I, if you choose not to go, I'm not hurt. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get married in Mexico. So that's it. That's all yeah. there is. Um, and you know, even acknowledging, um, I have people in my family that are, are vegan and extremely very, very aware of animals as food sources. And so we've talked about, okay, I will have, here is the vegan event I can commit, can commit to. Mm-hmm. And I am ready and here to hold you and be with you. And then if you need to leave, I understand. Yes. Right? Like So talking about those things and carving out all those spaces as opposed to worrying, fretting, is somebody going to say something? Is my brother who is vegan going to shake the table and turn it over? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, what's going to happen? Instead yeah. of all of that anxiety and that energy, right? That yeah. energy that's sort of misspent towards worry and anxiety can be shifted and it can be spent in connecting with one another and taking care of ourselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that really brings it full circle because I think when we're grounded in our worthiness, that's when we are best able to do that right? To know this person not coming to my wedding isn't about me and it doesn't make me unworthy. It's really about them. And it's about where they're at. I mean, we certainly had that with our wedding, right? The people who, for whatever reason, chose not to come and knowing, okay, you know, this is their choice. I have choices. They have choices. They're going through things in their life that may make it Like it's not possible either emotionally or logistically for them to show up for me in this celebration. And that's okay, Right. It doesn't mean I hate them. It doesn't mean I'm torn apart. Yeah, maybe I'm a little disappointed, but because I'm grounded in my worthiness, it's not a big emotional event where I think, well, what did I do wrong or what? You know, it doesn't become all of that. And I think that really is the power of knowing our worth and grounding ourselves in our worthiness because it just branches out and enables us to do so much healthy work in our relationships and to not feel worried and anxious and upset because other people are making choices about their own lives.
0: You know, when I think about it, I think about like how anxious I used to feel, like how much I felt like I had to perform, get the right grades, do the right, do all the things and, you know, even past like going to Harvard and getting, you know, getting the jobs and all the things, even with my children, you know, I wanted to have the absolute perfect. I wanted to be the black Martha Stewart. Like mm. I, I wanted the like butterfly release at the birthday party. And I mean, all the things, all the things I was going to hand embroider their onesies. Make oh, my wow. baby food. Oh, Oof. oh yeah. <laughs> And I walked around at a level of agitation and worry and discomfort and like this desire to always be doing and doing and doing. Mm. And I wish I could explain to anyone who is there what's possible because Mm. it's almost, I think my the me self from back then would have a hard time recognizing Mm. the current me who's like, oh, Mm. you want your birthday party? Chuck E. Cheese, awesome. You You know, like, I don't have all of these expectations because whatever they want is, is great. And, mm-hmm. and they're worthy just because they are. And we are, a we are a worthy family because we are, we don't have to yeah. do anything. We don't have to have the right parties, the right yeah. house, the right clothes. There is no, there is no right thing. Right. Right. But until all of that Felt away for me. I was as bound up in it
1: as mm-hmm. girl, I was a black
0: Barbie in a box. I was mm-hmm. trying to do all the things. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know so many parents, you know, relate to your experience. And as we wind down, I I know you're doing really powerful work with the Loving Collective and supporting parents. And so I'd love for you to share. Just a little bit about that, and then also where people can find you and connect with you further. We have so much going on, which is so excited, exciting. So, exciting. so
0: um, the Sarah Collective, S A I R, which I know is new to you, Adia. Ah, okay, I misnamed it. The Sarah <laughs> Collective. Let's, sorry. Um, So the short version of the story, why we have the name Sarah Collective is that, and I know that you know, in times of instability in Africa, people braided seeds into hair Mm. as as a way of taking sustenance, physical sustenance, as well as hope. Forward, mm. Right. And for me, as a, a descendant of enslaved people, like the knowledge of those seeds that mm. that came across that horrible journey mm. were planted in that ground in Alabama and fed my grandmother and my great grandmother mm. and me. And that's my the okra and the, you mm. know, and the, all of the things that fed and, and nourished my soul. So the name of the business is Sarah Collective and it's all about that rootedness mm. uh, that we have. And, and I am doing classes within that. Awesome. So this is not a drill is one of our classes for white folks who are talking with their friends and family about anti-racism. And I have unlearned and several other courses for parents. Um, and then we're doing some consulting work. I'm working with a, uh, several nonprofits right now and a big for-profit company trying to help them with their inclusion journey. Mm. As my parents, as my children say, my children say, mama teaches people to be nice to each other. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm. And then, um, and then the last part of what I'm doing right now is the Loving Collective. It's probably the first of our memberships, but this mm. one is really rooted in trying to help those white parents. Fortify their children, right? And to help them understand the experience of growing up Black in America, even when they haven't had that experience but also helping them navigate that difference in their relationship. So that's kind of, you know, I don't have much
1: going on. Ah, just, <laughs> a, just a few things. So, I mean, it sounds so powerful. You're you're creating impact in such a wonderful way. And I just, I love your approach coming from this place of love and kindness and radical honesty and all of these things is so powerful. And I know you're making a difference in many families' lives, organizations, individuals, individuals, communities. And so, you know, make sure you go and reach out to, to Corey and learn more about the Sayer Collective and all the good work that she is doing. Corey, thank you so much for spending the time with me today for sharing your personal story and your wisdom and expertise. It is really thought provoking and inspiring. I know it's going to be such a wonderful thing for the listeners to hear. Thanks. It was a joy to be with you. Thanks for joining me this week on the Unconditionally Worthy podcast. Make sure to visit my website, dradiagoodin.com, and subscribe to the show on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. You can also follow me on social media at Dr. If you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes so we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Lastly, if you found this episode helpful and know someone who might benefit from hearing it, please share it. Thanks for listening and see you next episode. This episode was produced by Chris and Tiana and the music is by Wattaboy.